I'm Alex Jones. I'm director of the Shorenstein Center on the Press, Politics, and Public Policy. And it is a great pleasure to welcome back uh, another former fellow uh, to the Shorenstein Center. Uh, you know, Rory Connors' bio begins this way. Journalist, author, filmmaker, executive, and entrepreneur. <laughs> that actually doesn't cover it. Um, you know, let's see. Experience in media management, administration, creative executive production services, strategic planning, leadership, editorial, I think you get the idea. The, the thing, though, that is really important about Rory is that any of you who have ever seen the film The Matrix, um, The Matrix is about... <laughs> the Matrix, executive producer. The Matrix is about, um, about a dystopian vision of the future of the world, but it's mostly about looking over the horizon at reality and seeing the way digital technology especially is changing the world that we live in. And that's what Rory specializes in. He's the guy uh, who is always sort of peering over the horizon. And I think that has made his career. Um, founder of Global Vision, uh, MediaChannel.org, editorial director of, of um, the social network, social news network, Newstrust.net. He's going to be talking about social media today, but his fundamental strength is a raging curiosity and apparently an, an unlimited amount of energy. Rory, welcome. Thank you. Uh, I guess what, in short form, what Alex was trying to say is I'm a jack of all media trades and master of none. Uh, but no, seriously, it's really terrific to be back here at the Kennedy School and the Shorenstein Center, because this is where I actually started all my research four years ago and you know, eventually became this book, Friends, Followers, and the Future. And uh, you know, I was initially drawn to the Shorenstein Center because, uh, you know, as I wrote in the book, it was it seemed to me that it would be if I could get that treasured fellowship, like an ideal perch from which to to not only to research but to reflect, uh, and then to respond to these massive changes that I saw at the time that were roiling my chosen profession of journalism. So. You know, that's how I came to be here. Uh, almost immediately upon coming here, though, uh, it became obvious that the same changes were radically and rapidly disrupting all kinds of things, not just big media, but big politics, big government, big business as well. And so if you remember, four years ago, there was a little thing called the National Presidential Campaign that was kicking off. So I very rapidly began looking not just at the disruption that was happening in media, but what was happening in politics, particularly campaigning. And so what I'd like to do today, since here we are at another cycle, obviously, uh, politics is very much on everybody's mind, is I'm going to talk and focus on just the political aspect of this. And, you know, I'd be happy to discuss or take questions about media or business or higher education, which is also in the process of being stood on its head, lots of things. But what I'd like to just talk about briefly today is 
politics because that seems to be uh, you know the question of the moment and, and for the next month or so so as I said uh, here I was I was at the at the Kennedy School and uh, let me just read a quick little thing I wrote in the book about it because uh, I said uh, it was an ideal perch, as I said, from which to re research, reflect, and respond to these massive changes in journalism. But Harvard's cachet, I found, also drew a parade of powerful players to the Kennedy School. Sound familiar? From an increase, the increasingly interconnected worlds of media, politics, and technology. And one result was a seemingly endless smorgasbord of speeches and seminars, interviews and panel discussions, formal dinners, and yes, brown bag lunches. So it was a fantastic place because the whole world, as you know, was coming here in the fall of 2008 with this campaign going on. And uh, as I said, while the book is about the digital information revolution, which, which I believe is actually you know, transforming nearly everything about the way we live, the way we work, we play, we do business, uh, we do politics, and certainly the way we communicate. Uh, I think that the Obama campaign of 2008, you know, as is almost a cliche now, really, you know, set the tone for the, the first campaign that ever be, really began to embrace the internet, the emerging media that came out, and quite honestly, I think that Without that, Obama would never have become president. He probably never would have even been able to get the nomination from Hillary Clinton because, uh, you know, if you think back, Clint, uh, Hillary was the, the well-known candidate, the well-financed candidate, the candidate, it turned out, of the past. And Obama was able to engage basically in, in asynchronous political warfare or campaigning and, uh, you know, toppled Hillary, which is something that nobody thought could ever happen. He embraced the Internet early on, and he ended up, let's face it, riding it all the way to the White House. Uh, so we know that that's the case, and that politics had been dramatically um, uh, disrupted. But let's just quickly flash back, because, of course, Obama was not the first campaign to get involved with social media. And, you know, in the book, I won't go into the details here, but, you know, we have to give uh, credit to Bill Bradley, first of all, uh, and also to John McCain uh, in 1999 and 2000, both of, of whom did some things that, you know, really uh, opened the door, if you will. But it, obviously, it wasn't until 2003 in the campaign of, a, again, a fairly obscure guy, uh, you know, the governor of Vermont, whoever knew who he was, Howard Dean, and again, Dean was unknown, had little money, and was getting, as a consequence, was being ignored by big media at the time. So he basically had no choice but to embrace <coughs> this new emerging media because, frankly, that was the only media that was going to pay any attention to him. And so Dean, uh, very early on, now, okay, let's flash back because... I often say that internet years are a lot like dog years. You know, we, we have to count like seven for every one. And the reason is because the pace of change is just so fantastically rapid. So it was one national campaign cycle ago, four Earth years, but 28 internet years ago okay, in 2008. So if you go back even further, 2003, what was social media? 
Facebook had not yet been invented. YouTube, no. Twitter, none of this stuff was here. What was social media? It was something called the blogosphere, which again, a lot of these days, a lot of people don't even think of in terms of social media anymore. So Dean went out to the, the liberal blogosphere, courted these people, started giving interviews to them, and that was the only media, media that he was getting. It was only until he did the second thing that social media is now famous for, which was raise a fantastic amount of money out of the blue over the internet, that all of a sudden the regular media decided we got to cover this guy because he raised a record amount of money in a month in the 2004 campaign cycle. Now, we all know, of course, that, however, Howard Dean did not win. So, you know, what effect, what impact can social media actually have on a winning campaign? Now, for that, you need to flash forward to 2008, as I said. And if you look at Obama, uh, he totally embraced the Internet in 2008. And let me just give you some stats because, again, I think it's, it's useful to uh, go over what he did because people forget. Now, he used social networks, as Howard Dean did, to raise record-breaking amounts of money. In fact, how much money? More than $500 million from 3 million donors, okay? He also used the new media to circumvent long-standing media and political brands by communicating with his supporters directly. So he was both raising money and messaging, energizing his base. Just to quickly give you some stats to remind you, he, he created his own Facebook-like social network with the aid of Chris Hughes, who was one of the co-founders of Facebook, my Barack Obama. And more than two million profiles were created just on that network alone. Uh, there were Three million calls, for example, made just in the final four days of the campaign using the virtual phone banking platform on that social network. But what hasn't really been given enough attention is that Obama also had more than five million supporters on other social networks. He had a profile in more than 15 online communities, including Black Planet, which is sort of a MySpace or Facebook for African Americans, on eons, one for baby boomers, and so on. So he was, he really got the internet and he embraced the social media in a way that nobody ever had before. And, uh, you know, I would argue, as I have, that that not only secured him the nomination, but that was responsible for him uh, becoming the president. Now, these new emerging tools and technologies, frankly, uh, they're just that. They're just tools. And uh, anybody, uh, you know, like Mark, who's been involved in politics at a high level, knows that as soon as there's a better mousetrap around, it's like, well, let's go get it. Okay? So it didn't take the Republicans long to catch up. Uh, and in fact, I would say by 2010, by the midterm elections, they clearly had caught up to the Democrats in terms of their embracing the social media. And what happened in the 2010 elections? Well, quite obviously, they did very well. Uh, so I went out and uh, talked to some people who were working on the Republican side, one of them a woman named uh, Mindy Finn. 
who had been, among other things, the director of e-strategy uh, for a fellow named Mick Romney in the 2008 campaign. So, uh, you know, Mindy is one of the pioneers of online politics uh, and working, as I said, on the Republican side. And uh, as she told me when I interviewed her in the book, uh, you know, the conventional wisdom, and we could talk about this, is the Democrats were ahead in 2008. Now, she pushes back on that, but honestly, I don't, I don't think there's much uh, controversy over that. However, uh, by 2010, as I said, in the midterm elections, many Republicans surpassed the Democrats, and Mindy touted three in particular. One is a fellow named Marco Rubio, who we'll be hearing a lot more from in 2016, in my opinion. Uh, she says, Marco Rubio got into the Senate race 18 months before the election. And if you look back at that time, if you looked at polls or money raising, it seemed clear he didn't have any shot at all. Uh, however, since he embraced the social networks, constantly reaching out through the social media in ways that his opponent the governor, the incumbent governor, Charlie Crist, last seen addressing the Democratic National Convention. Uh, Crist did not do it. Rubio did. And he came out of nowhere and he got elected. Similarly, Sean Duffy in Wisconsin also thought not to have a shot against a powerful incumbent, a guy named uh, David Obie, who had been in office, a Democrat, been in office for years. Right from the beginning, social media was very important in Duffy's campaign, says Finn. He used flip cam videos effectively. He was on, constantly on Facebook to build an audience. The people who supported him then became the distributors of his campaign message, and they shared because they cared. As a result, Duffy built so much excitement online that he ultimately drove Obi out of the race, and obviously he won. And then finally, Finn cited somebody who really surprised me, Texas Governor Rick Perry. Now, you know, last seen saying, oops. But if you flash back to 2010, now here you had an incumbent governor in Texas, but he was opposed by, let's say, the Republican establishment and uh, Senator Kay Bailey Hutchinson running against him. So he actually was like a maverick campaign, even uh, campaigner, even though he was the incumbent governor. Uh, and he totally abandoned his old style of, of running. He got rid of direct mail. He got rid of robocalls. Not a lot of television, says Finn. Instead, it was an online-driven candidacy that dramatically shifted the public perception of him. Uh, he's personally an active tweeter. He would sometimes spend an entire day with the top bloggers instead of with the top funders. And Finn says that's how tangible social media are now. So just to quote her again, uh, social networking is now the very foundation of your campaign, she says. It supports everything you do. It can't be compared to other media and you just can't run old media campaigns like in the past. Rory, can I just mention one thing related to Perry, which was pretty interesting, talking about doing things differently. He not only, he actively went out, he actively did not seek the endorsements of the mainstream media. Mm -hmm. He 
you know, I mean, it's, it's always been a traditional thing when you're running for governor. That you, I mean, it's an absolute that you go to the editorial boards in the newspaper. Of course. He, he, he polled his members, I mean, he polled his constituency and determined that by getting their endorsement, it'd actually be a negative. <laughs> so he was one of the first people to campaign for governor successfully and literally thumb his nose at, at the mainstream media and, and traditional newspapers. And arguably, that sort of strategy was responsible for him getting reelected. So let's now you know, flash forward to, to 2012, to the present, because that's where everybody's mind is. Um, now, in some respects, I would say that this is proceeding as, as one would expect. Clearly, Obama has doubled down on social media and embracing the Internet from 20, uh, 2008. Uh, by the way, full disclosure before I go any further, my son, Kieran, is now started as an intern, is now an Obama staffer. Mm -hmm. I want you to know that. Uh, his Twitter handle is at TruthTeam2012. And last time I checked, he had 35,000 followers, okay, which pales the number that follow me. Uh, <laughs> but so, so part of it, I know, but there are literally uh, more than 2,000 people in the mothership in Chicago uh, in the Obama campaign who are working on nothing but social media and digital media. So it's mission critical to Obama in 2012. Uh, similarly, you know, the, the Romney campaign, they, you know, they haven't had four years or even six years because Obama really started embracing uh, the new media in 2006 when he ran for Senate. So the Romney people have been playing catch up. They do have a pretty smart guy, I think, in Zach Moffat, who's running their digital uh, campaign. And I think the digital now uh, really has a seat at the table in the Republican uh, uh, campaign, which it didn't have in the past. Okay? So, but let's just look at uh, what's going on. Now, I would say by. Uh, First of all, it's a truism, uh, and I think because it's true, of modern political campaigning that the candidate who gets the changes in communication and media technologies is almost inevitably going to be the winner. And if you look back at time, when it was, let's say, Roosevelt with the radio, Kennedy with television, so on and so forth, that the people who recognize this early on and embrace it and, and really bring it into their campaign in a, in a in a dedicated way are more likely than not to succeed. So that's why I'm saying that I believe that Obama is still more likely to succeed in 2012 than not, although I want to amplify on that because I think that he, well both sides actually are making a lot of mistakes in the way that they're applying social media uh, and in Obama's case it could be the critical factor in his, uh, in his defeat. So, but at, at any point, by almost any measure right now, the Obama team is ahead. And by that, if you're talking about, I mean, on measures like the amount of content produced online, for example, the, the number of platforms that they're engaged in, the amount of public response uh, in terms of shares, views, comments, you know, any of those metrics, the Obama people are pushing out more. But that's what one would expect. Uh, both sides are using... Uh, really uh, targeted information in a way that advances from what we've seen in the past. You know, the Romney campaign, for example, uh, very cleverly early on put on some very targeted online videos and, you know, depending on what uh, zip code you were in and other, you know, 
pieces of data mining, they would target it particularly to you. This is a trend that I would say we're going to see a lot more of in the future, uh, is online video clearly is growing. And this targeting and data mining, which is something that people, you know, are afraid of from social media on the Facebook side of things, uh, I think there's a lot to be looked at and investigated in the political side as well. You know, where are they getting this information about us? What are they doing with it? I'd like to see more transparency. But in any event, uh, what we're finding is that clearly among the, the people formerly known as the audience, namely <laughs> the citizens here, that social engagement is higher than ever. Now, for example, during the uh, recent Democratic Convention, a record was set. Nine and a half million tweets were, s were sent over the course of the four days. So it never happened before. Well, guess what? 10.4 million tweets were sent during the 90-minute debate. So you can, you can just see that it's the hockey stick in terms of public engagement with social media and politics. People are, are engaging this. They're creating new ways. They're watching debates in new ways. For example, uh, Xbox did something small, but I think uh, very significant. They streamed the debate on Xbox, which does everybody know what Xbox is? Okay, it's like a game console. Okay, so they're, they're running the debate on the game console, and they're in asking in real times, right now, do you think Obama's ahead or Romney's ahead? And 10,000 gamers were answering and giving real live data back to Xbox. Now, as I said, this is a very small uh, window into where we're going. And uh, once I finish dissecting what might happen in 2012, I want to conclude my remarks, at least, by looking at the future and then and then get into some interactivity with you all. So uh, social engagement on the part of the citizens, I, I say, clearly is higher and higher than ever. So the, the voters are getting more and more social. The question is, are the candidates actually getting more and more social? And it's, a, as I said, the crucial question for Obama, because let's look at his base. His base is young people women and minorities, all three of those groups are more involved in social media than, you know, on average. Okay, so if he can convert that base, truly engage them, energize them to the point where they turn out, then Obama will win. I, I honestly think it's that simple because even if Romney turns out his base, his base is not on social media. He's not going to be able to reach them. And the Obama base, as I said, he's doubled down on, on the Internet trying to turn out that base. If he succeeds and truly succeeds in engaging them and they do go to the ballot box, I think that's going to provide the margin in what, what's going to still be a very close election. However, there's a huge problem. And in my latest blog post, if anybody wants to follow these things, RoryO'Connor.org, uh, I write about how I think both candidates are actually taking old wine and pouring it into new bottles. And what do I mean by that? Yes, they're using the emerging media, but they're using it under an old paradigm. So what are they using it for? Okay, so Obama, once again, is raising huge amounts of money online. But where is he spending that money? 
on television, legacy media, and on, frankly, on saturation bombing the airwaves in, what, nine states now? I mean, so television in nine states, massive millions, hundreds of millions of dollars going to this old medium, which we now see is basically vanishing before our eyes in importance, okay? 30% of your television audience, if you're delivering ads on TV, 30% of the audience is not seeing them. 10% doesn't watch television at all. And 20% watches on DVRs and skips every ad. So now we have hundreds of millions of dollars in nine states and missing 30% of the people even in those states. And these trends are only going to accelerate. So the importance of television is going to, in my opinion, go away in the next four to eight years. And one of the key questions before us is, well, what if anything is going to replace it? And if nothing replaces it, what does that mean? What does it mean, for example, for the importance of money, which infests and infects our political process? If we don't, if television ads don't work anymore, then maybe we don't need hundreds of millions of dollars, and maybe that's a way to begin to take money out of the equation. I don't know. Will online video be as persuasive as television? It may not even work the same way. So we're in a very transitional phase here, but I think that the challenge for Obama is that he, both campaigns have been playing it extremely safe online. Obama was the front runner, clearly that was his strategy. But by using the new media in an old way, A, simply to pull money out and spend it elsewhere, and B, in order to deliver his message, but his message is one way. It's the old command, control, centralized, broadcast model. There's no real conversation that you can have with either candidate. There's no true interactivity. It's more like, here's my message. Now, here's my message on Twitter and Pinterest and Spotify and Instagram. Yes, they're everywhere on the social media, but they're not being social. So I guess it's, you know, I would say it's in inevitable, because we're in this transitional phase, that the old paradigm is still here while the new media is emerging. And I don't think they've quite figured it out, but I think it could be a mission-critical mistake for Obama. Why? Because when I talk to young people, for example, I find that they're nowhere near as engaged as they were in 2008. There's a lot of reasons for this, you know, the economy and so on, and, you know, four years of, of, of hope without change, perhaps, or without sufficient change, whatever. There's a lot of reasons for it. But they, one of the main reasons is because they're not really being engaged, and there's really not a conversation going on. They're being, you know, talked at as opposed to talked to. And as I said, at the same time, dumping money into you know, television in nine states. So I think it's very much a play it safe strategy by Obama. Is it smart? Well, if he wins, it was smart. If he loses, is why he lost the election, in my opinion. So just to wrap up looking forward, though, I'm like super optimistic. And I'm super optimistic about journalism and the media. And I'm super optimistic about 
politics and government, or let's say citizenship. And I see a lot of surprised faces. And you know, the reason is because you know you, you got to destroy the old to get to the new, right? So I'm finished destroying the old. Uh, you know, I think that particularly young people in journalism, and I think increasingly in politics, are getting a message of negativity, doom, and gloom. Now, it's not surprising that newspapers think everything is bad because newspapers are going out of business, and they'll they'll be gone in five to ten years, too, with a few exceptions. So the message that they're delivering is doom and gloom, but that's only their doom and gloom. Newspapers are going away. Journalism isn't going anywhere. In fact, it's never been a more exciting time, I think, as a young person to get into the field of journalism because everything's up for grabs. Nobody knows what to do. Uh, and the old people, like me, are looking to the digital natives, tell me what to do. And there's a lot of experimentation, and the barriers to entry have dropped. So I, I want to be more encouraging. And I think the same thing is true in terms of politics and citizenship, okay, which is that we have a tremendous uh, opportunity here. And the opportunity is can we make voting, can we make civic participation cool? Can we make it fun? And in order to do that, we need to make it interactive. We need to really be engaged and engaged. We need to have a real conversation because, you know, frankly, my own impression, at least, if not conviction, is that the two political parties are largely engaged in voter suppression and anti-democrat. In other words, what are all these ads on television aimed at doing? They're aimed at e either making you vote against someone or, more likely, not vote at all because they're all a bunch of bums. I turn on my TV, this guy's a crook, this guy didn't pay his mortgage, she did this. It's like, ah, a pox on all their houses. So television advertising is not aimed at persuading you to vote for someone. It's aimed at persuading you to vote either against someone or better yet, not to vote at all. And I won't even get into what the so-called Democratic Party did in, in 2000 uh, to Ralph Nader to get him knocked and the Green Party knocked off of the ballot in as many states as they could so you didn't even have the option of voting for him. So we're, we're moving from a, a system that's set up to actually an anti-democratic system set up to persuade people not to vote. We need to move into a more inclusive, participatory, decentralized system where it becomes cool to vote and all sorts of tools and technologies, whether it's the Xbox example, but blown out in a much more sophisticated way, whether it's the online voter registration uh, process that we've seen a little bit of, the, the gamification. There are all sorts of things, and, and I think you're going to see a, an explosion in the next four to eight years of new tools and technologies that are going to be aimed at increasing civic literacy, making more citizens actually feel like they are engaged, truly engaging us, as opposed to talking at us under the guise of having a conversation and engagement and all these buzzwords. I don't care what you call it. Give me a voice. Give me a seat at the table. Maybe we could start by crowdsourcing uh, the platforms. I mean, there's a million ideas, but I think in general, you know, you get what I'm going for, which is that we, the people, need to use the social media 
in order to, you know, take back our democracy, if you will, uh, because the politicians aren't doing it yet. And if the people lead, the politicians will follow. So, you know, I think that's what's going to happen in maybe 2016, maybe it'll, it'll take 2020. I, I can't predict the pace of change. But uh, I just want to wrap up with one last thought, which is that, you know, recently the president, and he was right, although he was attacked for it, the president said something really smart, which is you can't change Washington from the inside. You can only change it from the outside. And I think that the president is right. I think that in 2008, that was the hope, that was the change that everybody, you know, was expecting. And my only question to him is, if the only way you can change Washington from the outside, well then, one wonders, why didn't he try that? So, whether it's President Obama or President Romney, uh, I think that the, the next round of candidates if they want to succeed, they're going to have to answer that question, and maybe they're going to have to try that, to, to actually try to change Washington from the outside by engaging, truly engaging, in a real conversation with people like us, with the citizens. Thanks, Rory. Let me ask a quick question, then we'll, we'll open it up. Um, you raised an awful lot of points, but the one that I want to ask you to reflect a little bit further on is the inherent uh, difficulty in making something like social media uh, not corrupted and compromised by the very familiarity of the process. Advertising is, the reason advertising doesn't work in large measure is because people discount it now. They look, I think, increasingly we began in the days of the blogosphere you described. There was a kind of a, of a vision that blogs were, were better because people could really speak their minds and speak the truth about at least how they felt. I think that that is now something that has sort of been blown up because people are, are they, they may believe that you're telling what you think, but there are so many people telling you what, so many, what they think that it kind of gets lost in the shuffle. When you're talking about social media, you're talking about something that is now inundating people. Mm. And it is something that I think the idea that you can have that kind of personal, the, the social media ideal was that interactivity that you described. How on earth can a president make people feel that one, that he, they're getting an authentic connection with him, mm -hmm. uh, and that, that it is something that is not being effectively gamed and manufactured by the people who support it. Well, I mean, those are good questions, but I think the answer is pretty direct, which is that he has to truly be authentic. He has to participate. In other words, like, maybe he should send out a few tweets, you know? Uh, and he has to be, he or she, hopefully in the future, you know, has to be much more transparent. But the main thing is that whoever it is, and I don't know that, you know, Obama will be capable of this or that it will matter because, you know, after he gets elected he'll never run again, uh, is to actually change the way that you think, okay? You, you have to, and it's a difficult thing to do, it's a difficult thing for me as a, as a television producer and a film director, 
I mean, if you think about television, for example, what's the dominant metaphor? Control. You know, everything comes out of a control room. It's sent out of a room called master control. There's a reason for that, okay, because it's a control broadcast model. Similarly, in politics, you have to learn to let go. You, Obama is still, as I said, trying to, like, if you will, jam his message down people's throat. He's trying to, like, take a television advertising technique and use funnel it through social media. What you have to understand is that we now live in a world that's increasingly decentralized, far more participatory. We have a whole cohort of young people who are used to organizing their lives in this way. And politics, big, you know, big politics, big media, and big business haven't yet caught up to that. So it's almost like turning a switch in your head and saying, I have to let go. The only way to like hold on to power is to diffuse it and let it go. And, and then if you're doing it right, it'll come back to you and it'll come back even stronger because you'll have millions of people behind you. Since we have Mark McKinnon in the room, I'd like to give him the first opportunity to respond to what, what you've heard, what you, what you think. Well, I've been a, a long time fan of Rory's and somebody who really Sitting around these corners, I'd like to ask you, Rory. Uh, you talked a lot about the campaign. How effective do you think that President Obama has been in ad adapting and incorporating social media into the governance process? Uh, disappointing. Uh, all right. Let me start with the positive. I think he's he's done more than anybody before him. Uh, I think it's like turning an aircraft carrier. You know, from the people that I talked to. I mean, recently I met with a Roberta Baskin, who you know describes herself as a recovering journalist. She was a great journalist. She's now working in the office of the Inspector General in HHH, HHS, and so she told me about her efforts to try and you know increase the transparency and so on. And it's very difficult, but you know, let's give credit. They're at least trying, and. Also, let's look historically. Now, Obama is, believe it or not, the first president to ever have his own email address. And you remember he had to fight to, to keep his BlackBerry. The president of the United States like, no, you can't have that. And correct me if I'm wrong, Mark, but I believe that President Bush didn't even use email at all. Is that? Well, he did, but they shut it, they shut it off. Okay, so they shut the, so the president, he, president before Obama couldn't even, uh, use email. Obama fought to get the copy. So we're coming, you know, if you look at where we're coming from, we actually have the first president who's ever actually had his own email account. Okay, well, society is a lot past that. The government is yet to. That being said, I am disappointed. You know, I hoped for more change. <laughs> Let's put it that way, than I saw. And again, not only in politics, but in governments, governance, I saw Obama and his people, I think they made a very conscious decision. It's like, okay, that was the campaign. We got elected. Now we're going to go back to the way these things should be, and the big boys will take care of everything, and thank you very much, and we'll come back to you in four years when we need some more money. So, Let me offer the first opportunity to students. Yes. I'm not actually a student. Are there students? Are there students in the room who would like to ask this? Yes. Sure. Um, you talked about how the candidates are playing it safe and they're not interacting, and 
I would say, what what do you think that actually, how, how could they interact in an effective way that would make a difference? Like replying to tweets and like posting on Facebook instead of having a staffer do it? Because one thing I see them doing is asking people to share their pictures or making these online videos and they get shared a lot. So it's maybe not interacting with the candidate, but it's a, it's a voter interacting with their network and sharing these things. and. Right. No, that, but I think that's a good example of what I'm saying because what do you ask, what content, I hate that word, but, you know, what content are you asking them to share? Are you asking them to share their content or your, the campaign's content? You see what I'm saying? So is that a conversation? No. It's like, here's my message. Will you please carry that for me? That's okay, not a conversation. It has to be interactive. You have to truly open yourself up. And, I, you know, this, as I said, for example. Well, who's he supposed to have the conversation with? Like hundreds of thousands of people. Some of them are crazy. Most of them. Okay. Well, you know, they still vote, I guess. <laughs> I mean, I, you know, I don't want to go into that. Maybe a lot of them are crazy, but, you know, they're all citizens. They all vote. And you, I suppose you want to persuade all of them. My argument is that the way to persuade people is actually not to talk at them, but to talk with them. So I think you hear a lot of language, as I said, about conversation, about engagement, about interactivity. But if you actually drill down, you're not seeing any, you know, real-world fulfillment. It's a lot of can't, if you will. So I gave as an example, and, you know, we could probably think of a half a dozen others, but what if the Democratic Party, you know, is creating a, their platform? Why, why don't we crowdsource the platform? Now, okay, maybe they're all crazy, so we don't, you know, we don't adopt everything that they say. I'm, I, let me give you another example, okay, and this is not campaign-oriented, but it is in a way. How many times has President Obama done online Q&As and chats? A lot, okay? Every time that he's done it, now let's see, who knows? Anybody in the room know? What was the number one topic of the most questions that came in? Anybody know? Marijuana legalization. Marijuana legalization. <laughs> okay? Now, every time, what did the president do? I'm not going to talk about that. That's stupid. That's silly. The number one amount of questions every time was over that, and he dismissed it. Never answered it. Said, oh, you know, when you get online, you know, the crazies come out, kind of like you did. Well, not everybody who's looking at marijuana, and it wasn't just legalization, it's medical marijuana, obviously serious issues, people with cancer and so on, he wouldn't engage because it wasn't what he wanted to talk about. Well, what kind of a conversation is that where we can only talk about what you want to talk about? That's, that's my point. And I think that that message is getting delivered over and over again, and I think it's part of the reason why young people in particular, the level of engagement is probably half what it was in 2008. Now, there are other reasons, but I think that's one of the reasons. There's a certain point you go, hey, this guy's not listening. Other students? Yes. Thank you for being here. Uh, just a quick question. Could you sort of unpack what you think in the future, um, the interactive nature of politics? You said, you mentioned taking back democracy. How could you see that playing out? Could you see it 
with Congress, for instance, um, and the dis disconnects between disconnects between representatives and their constituency, and this being sort of an effort uh, or an, a manifestation of bringing yeah. them realigning. Like, this is what I is up before me today. How do my constituents feel? I mean, could you see something like that happening? Yeah, I mean, you know, I could see that happening. I, you know, again, if you look at uh, some cases in the past with crowdsourcing, you know, like for example, Talking Points Memo, you know, where there was a lot of big data, and as a journalistic operation, they didn't have an opportunity to unpack it. So they went to their community and said, okay, look, here's all the data out there uh, about, you know, divided in con into congressional districts or whatever. Now, you you take it on and you come back to us. And then you could funnel that through, you know, a, a blog or, or through a congressional office or something and say, look, I mean, because we all know that congressional office, you know, representatives' office in particular, because they get elected every two years, are very responsive to phone calls or even more if you show up in the office, which people, you know, often don't do. And I think clearly we could come to a, a place where, you know, social media is employed much more effectively, where that too would be, they're like, okay, my job is to like listen to my constituents, uh, you know, have a conversation, and then make a reason determination. So no, it's not going to be determined by how many you know people right. tweet or whatever, but you could have a much more responsive, uh, community-oriented uh, process that would at least inform the representative before you know he or she is voting. You know that that's an example. Uh, you know, going out as I said, simply going out and asking people for their opinions. What I found as, as an active blogger, you know, again, this is a, a cliche, but it happens to be true. Invariably, my audience knows more than I do about what I'm writing about. And so when I write something, that's the beginning. First of all, whatever error I made gets immediately <laughs> corrected. Okay, but more often, I mean, beyond that, people say, yeah, I really like what you wrote. Did you know this about that? I'm like, no, I didn't know that. <laughs> and, you know, so it, the knowledge is out there and the knowledge expands because we're in, actually engaged in an authentic conversation. Isn't that what a, a democracy is supposed to be? The first thing is you need to have an informed citizenry. You know. That's another problem. That's right? a whole other problem, and I, I do go into that. Actually, the core of my, my book is, like, how can we find credible uh, and trustworthy news and information, whether it's in media or politics or anything else? So that's, that's a leading issue. But I just think that we do have these wonderful tools and technologies that are not really being exploited anywhere you know, near their potential yet. But... As I said, I'm optimistic. I think these things are going to change rapidly. And just finally, another thing that might happen, if we can diminish the importance of television, as I said, and you don't, then you don't need all this money, then maybe we could begin the process of, if not eliminating, reducing the importance of money in our political process. And I think that alone would be a major victory. Any other students? Okay, you get the first. There's a reward for your honesty. Thanks. Um, I actually wanted to uh, address something that you haven't talked about, uh, which was in your speech title about brands. Um, and uh, just for background, I was um, a reporter writer in the London Bureau of Time magazine uh, three years ago, and we were setting up blogs. And one of the things we struggled with is 
social media is inherently kind of a kind of classic. It doesn't really favor the big players. And how can you uh, how can you um, sort of hold on to your brand uh, integrity while engaging in social media? Um, so for the big sort of, for the big kind of established players outside of politics, where there's a business interest and in sort of what's the strategy there, and, and, and how does that work? Yeah, you know, I never thought I'd be writing about brands. It's you know, not something I think about a lot. But once I started to get into this, I found that the whole notion of what a brand is is now being stretched to the point that we may need to come up with a new word for it. So I would say that big brands are going away. Now, what do I mean by First of all, again, what is a brand relationship? A brand relationship is nothing more than a trust relationship. So it does come down to that central issue again, which is like, can I trust this entity over time, whether it's to deliver, you know, Coca-Cola that you know, tastes the same no matter what country. Who wants to have 120 different versions of Coke? You know, you want to trust that when you buy a Coke in Ethiopia, it tastes the same, okay? But... If you look at what's happening with branding now, we're in an age, as they say, everybody has to have their own personal brand. You know, you're a journalist, it's, you don't work for Time Magazine anymore, you, you know, you're your own brand, right? Now, on top of that, we have a world of, of curation that's coming up because, you know, again, to your point, Alex, you know, too much information, it's washing over us, how do we deal with all this? And, you know, one of the filters that people are beginning to rely on is to rely on curators, you know, so, so let's say just in the field of the environment, you know, I'm interested in the environment, but I'm not a specialist, I don't have the time. So who's the go-to person who follows all this stuff, eliminates the chaff, you know, this, this is noise, this is signal, this is important, this isn't, these are the right people here, so, you know, so they create a little, you know, micro brand, if you will. So if we have personal brands and we have micro brands and we have big brands, at a certain point, what does it really mean to be a brand anymore if everybody and everything is a brand? So I think in part we're getting to, you know, a phase where the whole notion of what a brand is is changing so radically that, you know, it may not be an effective way to communicate with uh, your consumers in, in the future to say that I'm a brand. But assuming that, you know, we're still in this interregnum, so, you know, the big brands are dinosaurs, yes, but they're still roaming the earth, they're very large, and they could still do a lot of damage. Uh, so let's look, you know, and one of the things I did in the book is I look at media brands, and I, and I looked at a couple of them, uh, ABC News and NBC News in parallel. Because I thought that uh, the guy that I talked to at ABC News, you know, didn't get it. And when I asked him, uh, you know, well, why should we trust ABC News, he started sputtering, literally, and said his answer was, well, because we're ABC News. You know, I said, well, that's precisely why most of the people I know don't trust you. When I talked to the guy who ran digital for NBC News, he said, we're in a whole new world now. NBC News wants to be your friend. What does that mean? It means giving you whatever news and information you need on any platform, at any time, from anywhere, including if it comes from ABC News, our competitor. Now, having worked back in the day at CBS News, I can tell you this is heresy almost. It's like, what? 
you know, NBC News is going to give you ABC News, but that's precisely what NBC News not only needs to do but should be doing. And so I would say that the big brands, largely media, but the other brands that embrace this will survive and probably thrive, and the ones that don't will disappear. Tom. I need to do a Mark McKinnon here. Uh, I admire Rory's work, and uh, I'll add to that, I'm a personal friend of Rory, so uh, put this in the category of kind of non-hostile fire. <laughs> Friendly fire. Can, can be lethal, nevertheless. <laughs> so I want to challenge your narrative a little bit. Uh, you know, when I look at this campaign, the momentum changers, at least, have all come through the old media, right? We're no. Well, forty-seven percent. Well, but where did that come well, from? Let me, let me finish, Cell phone let camera. Me finish it. But you know, you get the Perry thing, you get the Clinton convention speech, you get the first debate. This is old media, right? And then that gets magnified by the old media, right? And that one of the things that you try to think about, sort of why so much of the narrative is created and works around the old media, right? And that one of the problems with the new media uh, is that on some levels it's the most transparent media, but then on other levels it's not as transparent. So you can't, during a campaign, observe what's going on in the new media anywhere near <coughs> like you can see what's going on in the new media. And you get the megaphone, the magnifying effect because of that kind of transparency of the old media that you don't get from the new media. So well, I guess I would uh, respectfully disagree. And as I said, well, let's I'm just... respectfully also. I understand. That's a non-hostile fire. <laughs> but, you know, let's look, you know, until the debate, what was the, what was the defining moment of the campaign? It was the 47% video. I think we can agree. And that's a classic case of the new media, asynchronous political... Uh, Involvement, as I was saying, because that never would have happened, even in even in 2008, that never would have happened, because everybody in the world didn't have a high definition camera in their pocket in 2008. But what we had was okay, so cell phone video A, B, what back when I wrote for them was a mar was a marginalized left wing publication called Mother Jones. They would always say, you know. They, would, they wouldn't say there was an article in Mother Jones. There's an article in the left wing, <laughs> pay no attention to it, <laughs> magazine. Mother Jones was a print magazine that came out ten times a year. So even if they had the video, you know, before the advent of the Internet, you would have, it would not have had the impact that it had. Now, is this new? No. We had the macaca moment in 2006 in the beginning of YouTube, which destroyed not only George Allen's Senate campaign, but his hopes to be president for 2008. So I, I, I say, look, we, we're in a revolution right now, but we're in the early stages of the revolution. And, you know, everything's still up for grabs. So we have old media and new media, old politics and new politics, all existing simultaneously. And there's, there's, it's chaotic, there's, there's conflict, there are winners, there are losers, and the outcome is not at all certain. Frankly, it depends on what people do from here. So I, that's my answer to you is that I think they're both very important at this no. phase. Right. I know it. Um. 
Is there any evidence that social media has actually increased uh, voter registration among the youth, the elderly, and minorities? And will it likely increase voter uh, turnout? Uh, mm -hmm. Particularly in light of what you said about negative television ads suppressing voter turnout, and that these same ads appear they are recorded and appear on YouTube and other online videos. Uh, for example, you can take a look at Big Bird commercial for uh, Obama for America. Uh, and, and lastly, uh, you, you mentioned take back democracy. Take it back from whom and to where? When was this golden age? Yeah, oh, no, a really good question about the impact. And uh, I would say that there are some signs. First of all, a lot more research is needed to really answer your question. But you know, there, there was a, a recent study, for example, that looked at the, the Facebook effect, and they found a small, but I would say still statistically significant uh, uh, result, which, which was that people were being driven to more engagement and more registration by their Facebook friends. And it wasn't so much people saying, you should do this, as people saying, I did it. So it was like a modeling. In other words, if more people in your network said, hey, I just registered to vote, that was driving a, a small but still significant number of people to emulate them. As I said, it's a, it's a small study. We need more. But it certainly is suggestive that the Facebooks of the world can have that impact, A. B, you know, Facebook, Twitter, all of these networks are only growing larger and larger all the time. So I, I think it's logical to think that if they do ha tend to have that impact, that that impact will grow as the network itself grows. So jury is still out, but the answer is probably yes. Okay, so that's A. B, uh, I think a lot of people in the room probably noticed when there was the internet voter registration drive recently uh, and again, that was you know coordinated with a lot of a lot of people in the digital space. Uh, it happened both online and offline. And I think the real answer to this is, you know, we, we have to have both tweet ups and meet ups. We have to have a combination of online activity and real world activity. So yes, we need to engage people online, but why? In order to get them to turn out offline and vote down the line. So if you don't have those two elements, you're not going to succeed. But I think you need both, and increasingly in the future. Yes, sir, back here, and then you. Yeah, um, two quick things. So first of all, I'll hit the like button on your optimism for the future. And I think uh, it's because we actually are seeing a greater interactivity, a greater participation, in, uh, decentralization. Uh, and it's happening from where a lot of forward-thinking ideas are coming from, and it's our cities. In, in this country and around the world, um, there's a whole host of incredible online tools that are being developed right now, implemented right now in cities to open up the, the planning process, open up um, or enhance and improve the delivery of standard city services. So in the city of Boston, for instance, we have the Citizens Connect app, which allows you to take a picture of a pothole or graffiti mm -hmm. or a broken traffic mm -hmm. light and then send it in with a geotag exactly where it is, go to the mayor's office. They're required then to report back to you on the progress of that report. Um, things like that. There's a, another tool called Neighborland. We're, we're running out of time. I'm oh, sorry. sorry. I need a, I need so a question, question if you've got one. Is, um, 
with your with your um, desire to see more engagement and more frequent open engagement between candidates and, and the electorate, how do you balance that between the 24-hour news cycle that is soundbite driven, where any little thing gets picked up and overblown, and and the campaign's reluctance to? You know, I mean, I think you answered the question, which is that if you're not getting a, an appropriate uh, response on a, on a national level, then take it down a notch. So maybe these things have to start in our communities. Maybe they have to start on a local level. Maybe that's the only place you anyone's going to listen to you initially. <laughs> so why not? Because, you know, maybe that might affect your lives and, and those of your neighbors in, in a more immediate and, and maybe a, a more profound way, if you will. So I would say, you know, take your opportunities wherever you can. I, I, I'm glad that you brought that up because I, sh I should have made that point myself. There is a tremendous amount happening on a local and, and to some extent on, this, on a state level. And I think the reason is because it's just kind of easier right now. So let's, let's follow the path of least resistance. And if we have successes in cities, I think that you know politicians on a on a upper level, if you will, are going to notice that and are going to want to emulate it. Final question. Yeah. Um, first of all, I would like to say that I'm so happy that you brought forward the idea about conversational reality, and I think that that can be underplayed. And because of the time, I'm just going to mention a poet uh, that I really think is fantastic on this particular subject. It's uh, David White, W H Y T E. You can look him up. dot com. You know, he uh, basically talks about this and, and has um, some background from, you know, corporate consulting and so forth. So the end of that. But what I wanted to um, mention at, um, is that I'm finding that there's some technical things that are happening from the, the retail side of things that I thought were kind of interesting and could be applied to the politics hmm. in that. For example, uh, certain manufacturers and people who are trying to sell things now can decipher whether or not you're calling in on BlackBerry or iPhone, and they can decide how much they're going to charge you based on what your apparatus <laughs> might be. And I thought, you know, this could also affect the political messages that you might actually be able to send because of these cookies. And I wondered if you've thought about this and, and explored it if you make a comment. Well, you know, I think there is a lot to be learned from the world of commerce, and particularly in terms of the pushback. I mean, look at, just give me one example, you know, the Bank of America, huge corporation, right? And they decided they were going to suddenly charge, you know, debit fees that people didn't like. Within 48 hours, they rescinded it, okay, because they literally had no choice. So, you know, I think if you're looking at that, a very large, you know, entity, uh, they you know, they made a big mistake, but they were smart enough to realize it and to turn around in a very rapid fashion. I think we're going to see more and more of that happening on a political level as well in the future. There's no reason why, why we can't have that same type of responsiveness. And I think, in fact, that we need to insist on it going forward uh, and create new tools and technologies. There are wonderful people out there who are working on this stuff. I'm not a hacker. I'm just a hack. So, you know, I have some ideas, but what I'm, my, I want to leave you, as I said, again, with this message of optimism, because there are people working on this. There is change happening on a local level. It's going to bubble up. And, you know, we shouldn't be surprised that these long entrenched, you know, forces, as, as I say in my book, of big media, of big government, of big business, you know, they are 
by definition resistant to change. So we shouldn't be surprised that it's taking maybe more time than, than we would hope. But I think we're actually on the cusp of a great rejuvenation and rebirth and, you know, as I said, taking back our democracy. On that positive, optimistic note, your lips to God's ear. Thank you all. Thank you.